The sermon text this morning is Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So many of you know the the great poet, um, Charles Dickens, and he once did a series of uh, talks in America. He said that in America, we got it all mixed up here. We have one day in which we give thanks to God for the things that we have, and then we complain the other 364 days. He goes, it should be the other way. In America, we ought to be giving thanks to God for all that we have, 364 days, and then pile all your grumbling and complaining in the one day that you don't give thanks. Uh, Do you consider yourself a grateful person? I mean, ingratitude can be quickly identified in other people. Quickly identified. Do you think you're grateful? Do you think that you are thankful? for the things that you have and the, and the person you've become. You know, we're going through this series in the book of Psalms on developing a language of worship. How do we worship God in all different circumstances? We've looked at a, a psalm of wisdom. How do we worship God when we don't know what to do, but we want to worship him? Or, or, or in series of trials and adversity, we looked at the psalm of lament. How do we worship God when things really are going just sideways? Last week, Brian spoke about how we worship God in periods of uncertainty where we can yet trust in him as our keeper. Well, today, of course, we want to learn the language of thanksgiving. How do we thank God for the good things that he has done for us? Now, some of you may be thinking right now, that seems pretty simple. Of course we thank God, but do we? Is it really fundamental to us that we just give thanks? Uh, We can cheer, we can celebrate. We do that naturally, I think. You don't have to tell a little kid to get excited when the fireworks go off. He he just naturally or she just naturally gets excited about all that they see. Or if you're a sports fan and your team scores a a touchdown in the last moment, you don't have to tell people to get up and cheer. They just do it naturally. But Thanksgiving is different. Any parent here knows the challenge it is to get their children to say thank you. It's a challenge to be thankful. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 30 is going to lead us in becoming people 
that are thankful, that are grateful. And, and we're going we're gonna to move in four pieces here in this psalm. In the first, the psalmist just begins to practice thanksgiving. In other words, how do you become a grateful person? Well, you start being grateful. You know, and so in the first three verses, he's going to make this promise, I'm going to give thanks to God. And then, and then the next two verses in 4 and 5, he begins to draw others into it and says, I want you to join with me in my thankfulness to God. So it becomes a corporate event. And then after that, in verses 6 to 10, the psalmist kind of remembers the past mercies of God as kind of a fuel to be grateful. And then he, he returns full swing to pledge, remembering the mercy of God, I will be grateful. I'm going to make a promise to you, God that I'll be grateful. So that's really what we're going to cover, how to be a grateful person. Do you want to be more grateful? You can identify ingratitude in others, and most of us find it very displeasing. We don't want to have it in ourselves. So look with me in verses 1 to 3. We're going to practice thanksgiving. That's what David is doing, the psalmist who wrote the psalm. Look, look at it with me. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you've healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. Now, we don't know the trauma that David was facing here. Uh, we don't know the enemies that were threatening him. We don't know. We don't know the details of it. But what we do know is that it was severe. He says, you've drawn me up. That's, that's a metaphor in Hebrew, kind of pulling up a bucket from deep in the well. It's a metaphor that you can kind of feel. It's like God bending over and kind of lifting you up from drowning. Uh, it, it's kind of a one foot in the grave experience for David because he says there in verse 2 that you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You've brought me up from death. So very quickly, David speaks and says, I will praise you because I cried out. I had a problem. I cried out to you. You healed me, and I'm going to give you thanks so let me turn to the question that I asked you at the beginning. Do you feel that you're a grateful person? If you're not sure, would you be willing to ask somebody in your family? Do you have the courage to do that? Do you see me as a grateful person? Do, do you see me as a thankful person? So, gentlemen, if you're married here, when was the last time that you gave thanks to your wife for those small sacrificial acts of mercy that she has done for you? When was the last time? Ladies, when was the last time that you thanked your husbands uh, for leading in the home as a servant, leading in the home in the faith? Or if you're not married and you have a good friend, was the last time you thanked somebody for just listening to you and, and, or maybe even giving a, a, a word of rebuke that they had the courage to do that because they loved you? When did you thank them last for that? Or if you're still a kid and you're in the home, when have you thanked your parents for kind of just giving you life and providing for you. So ask this question, are, are you a grateful person? Not just grateful to other people, maybe some of you are. Maybe you would be in your mind right now, you're saying, yeah, I, I really try to thank people every day for what they do for me. How often do you thank God for what he has given to you in life? The gifts you have, the strength you have, the fact that you have breath right now, the fact that you have power in your limbs, you know, G.K. Chesterton was an English essayist, and he, he said this. He said, when we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? 
Just the simple gift of life. When was the last time you thanked God that you're breathing and you're alive? You know, it's more important than you think. Gratitude is very significant. Let me explain why. It's actually an essential characteristic of those who are redeemed. If gratitude is not part of your life, it would lead one to question, have you come to a saving knowledge of God? In other words, the Christian isn't marked simply by the right creed or, or the right system of belief. It is that. But the Christian is marked by a conduct that reflects the creed that they believe. It's a belief that follows behavior. We know this in Romans chapter 1. When Paul is speaking to the church in Rome, and he's trying to, you know, this whole letter, which we'll be getting to back to in about three weeks, the whole letter is about how do we get right with God? How are we reconciled with God? And he speaks to the problem that everybody has. He says in chapter 1 that all men are without excuse. In other words, God's invisible qualities, these eternal attributes, they're all known by creation. Nobody can say, I don't know that God exists. We live in his land. We know that he exists. But here's what he says. He says, so they are without excuse. Although they knew God, we all know God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. So Paul actually uses gratitude as a fundamental mark of those who know God. Those who can never thank God, those who can never honor God for all that he is and all that he's done, don't know him. And this just isn't Paul. This is Jesus. Remember the story in Luke 17 when those 10 lepers come to Jesus. They're afflicted with the disease of leprosy. They ask for mercy. And so Jesus, he says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, I think what he's doing is he's testing them here. He's testing them to see, do they believe that he has the power to heal? And it says all ten left. And on their way, they noticed they were healed. But what's interesting is only one came back. Only one. Only one came back to give thanks. And it's only to one that Jesus says, your faith has saved you. The other nine had faith to believe in God that he could heal. But that was not a saving faith. That was not a, a, a faith that brings us reconciled to God. It was just a faith, yeah, God is the faith. We call it a miracle faith. Yeah, I believe that God can do miracles, but we never climb to the place of saying, I need to be reconciled to God. I need my sins removed. I need to be made right with God. When was the last time you thanked him for that? When did you thank him for carrying all your sins away? When have you thanked him that you've been established with a citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When did you thank him last for the hope that you have that transcends even the power of death? When did you thank him last for promising that we'll dwell with him forever? We, the Christians, have a future that is unmatched, unmatched for which just should pour forth thankfulness and gratitude from us. We find it so easy to grumble and complain. The truth of the gospel should be like this this boulder on one side of the scale that just weighs down, leading us to thankfulness. Even when the troubles and the trials, the temporary stuff that we go through, it's legitimate, it's difficult, no doubt. It just can't hold a candle to the weight of gratitude we should have for what God has done for us in Christ. So this is the first step in one to three. How do we become a grateful person? 
We become a grateful person by giving thanks to God for all that he has done for us in this life and in Christ. But notice what the psalmist does. He goes on in 4 and 5, because what he wants, he's not satisfied. You know, Charles Spurgeon says that he doesn't think his thanks are enough. He needs to get more people to join with him. And so look with me at 4 and 5, because he says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, as Joel prayed, and it may seem like it will go on. But let me assure you, joy will come in the morning. So what the psalmist is doing here, he's giving thanks to God. He's practicing the giving of thanks, but now he's drawing other people into it. He, he wants others to join with him. He's, he's going public with his thankfulness is what he's doing. And he says simply, oh, you his saints. Now, when you see saints in the scriptures, he's not talking about a bunch of dead holy people. He's talking about people who are alive and who are in right relationship. In fact, that Hebrew word, really means the loving kindness of God. Those who are in a loving relationship with God. He wants them to join together with him to give thanks. But notice why he's drawing them in. He's telling them about his life. Hey, he delivered me from the pit. I want you to thank him with me. Now, you may not be in a great place. You may be troubled and trialed. And so he gives you a reason to join with him in giving thanks. Look in verse 5, because he says, for. He says, for his anger lasts for a moment, his favor for a lifetime, weeping may tarry, but joy comes in the morning. What he's saying here is he's talking about the character of God. He says in verse 4, he says that we want to give thanks to his holy name. He's saying that God is holy, he's good, he's right. That though his anger is there, and it is present, and it is real, it is for the moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. That he's, I think what David's doing is he's trying to encourage those who are struggling right now to yet give thanks because joy is coming. Favor is coming. You don't need to worry. It will be yours. In other words, this isn't something like every cloud has a silver lining. Cheer up. It'll be better tomorrow. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to the saints. And he's saying, you know God is good, and you know he's going to come through. You can join with me in giving thanks. That's his point. Many of you know the hymn. I'm sure you've sung it as kids. Now thank we all our God. Martin Rinkart wrote this hymn. Let me remind you of its words. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things hath done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's wombs, arms, hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Many of you know that hymn. You've sung it. The man who wrote it actually uh, lived in Eilenburg in Saxony in Germany in the uh, early 1600s. He was a pastor. His ministry was marked by great difficulty. It was the time of the 30-year war, this religious war in Europe. Uh, famine and plague had devastated great parts of Europe. At one point in his ministry, he was burying up to 50 people a day. And one of them was his wife. It was in the midst of that time that he wrote this hymn. Now we thank. Now we thank our God. We give thanks to God in the midst of trial and adversity because of his goodness, because of that joy that will be ours, that favor that will last forever. We give thanks. 
and we give thanks together. Uh, that's what we want to do here. This, this is what we gather on Sunday morning. The world sleeps. You get up and you come here to give thanks to God for all that he is. You know, before every elders meeting, I usually go around the room and, and say, tell me about the grace of God in your life. In other words, what has God done in your life in the past week that has displayed his goodness? I want to join with them in it. And so everybody tends to share about some mark of grace. Uh, we, I would encourage you to do this in your care groups. In your care groups is a time of giving thanks to God for what he has done for you, uh, of testifying it among the assembly of the righteous, among the saints of God. We do this at a family meeting. You know, we have these family meetings, if you don't know, in May and August, and in, then in January. I'd like to have more of them, frankly. It, it's a time where we get together, we pray, we speak about the direction of the church, what we're doing, new missions, that sort of thing. But we always have a time of giving thanks. Now, sadly, probably only a third of you come. But it's a time where we, as members of one body, come together to speak about all that God is doing. Time of great rejoicing. This is Carol's kind of, she loves that. In fact, what her, what her most, well, one of her greatest joys about going to heaven will be is hearing about all that God did through the lives of the saints over the course of the world. Jesus wants to hear, <coughs> excuse me, about the goodness of God in the lives of the saints. <coughs> excuse me. That's what we want to do. We want to give thanks. We want to we want to enjoy one another and the thanks that we have. Even though it's difficult, we give thanks together and we give thanks in faith. Remember what he's saying here in verse 5. There will be difficult times for us. We can still give thanks to God in it. We can still rejoice in it. Why? Because there's a paradigm set for us. Suffering leads to joy. Trials lead to treasure. We see it in the life of Jesus Christ. You know, it was Jesus who said these words in John 16. He says, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. <clears throat> you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, you have sorrow now, <clears throat> but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. No one. This is why we rejoice together. We rejoice in faith, even in the midst of trial. Right now you may be undergoing some major press point. There will be a joy for you that will cause the anguish that you are experiencing, to almost be forgotten. Paul says the same thing. He says the momentary afflictions that we bear aren't even to be compared with the eternal glory that will be ours. Remember, the Christian here always has one eye on that day. We've always got one eye on that day to remind ourselves that is our heritage, that is our hope. So the psalmist calls us to give thanks, and then the psalmist calls us to enjoin others to give thanks with us. We do it together corporately. But look at, look at the third part. Because the psalmist in verse 6 kind of shifts and goes back to his life. He speaks about God's mercy when he maybe didn't deserve it. The psalmist is speaking about a time where he was quite full of himself. 
He thought highly of himself, his health, his wealth. Look in 6, he says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall not be moved. What arrogance. You know, me, I, my, I. I mean, it's all about him. It's all about his work. David, probably standing at the height of his kingdom, thinking how great and glorious he is, how mighty he is. Many scholars think this is when he did the census, when he sent Joab, the commander of his armies, to go among the tribes of Israel and count up all the able-bodied men who could hold a sword and thousands and hundreds of thousands in all of his armament. And he's sitting at the top of his kingdom feeling great and mighty and powerful. But he's deserted faith. He's now looked at the strength of the arm of a man as opposed to God. He is arrogant and he has forgotten the Lord his God. But look what God does. Because he says in verse 7, he says, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. What changed? He, David said, I shall never be moved. He just said at the end of verse 6, now he says, you've made my mountain strong. What brought about the change? What brought, what brought about this humility? Well, look what God did. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. God in mercy turned away. God led him to his own devices. God let him see how insecure he really was. And you know what? David began clamoring for help. Look at 8 to 10. He starts bartering with God. Will the grave give thanks to you? Will the dust praise you? Now, before we level some charge against David here, who among us have not often said, or at least thought, God, I'll do this if you heal, strengthen, preserve me, or fill in the blank. We've all done it. God leads us to that place where his face turns slightly, his favor diminishes, and all of a sudden our ground starts shaking. And we start getting very nervous. This is the mercy of God. This is his mercy to bring us, to wake us up. William Law was a, a great pastor. He says, trouble is sent in mercy. It rouses the sleepy soul from dangerous lethargy. It's a scourge which drives the careless to the mercy seat. This is the mercy of God. Do you hear the warning here? We who live it, just in wealth, and in health, and in safety, and in security? Do you hear the warning that it can blind us? It can blind us to the, to the God who has given these things to us. You know, prosperity can be perilous to the soul. It can be perilous. May I remind you of the parable Jesus taught about the man who was secure. He talked about the parable of the rich the rich man whose crops and fields produced more and more and became more and more abundant. He built bigger and bigger barns. And so the young man says, you know what? I'm going to take my life easy. I'm going to sit back, eat and drink and be merry. Is what he said. He's resting on the pile of cash that he's acquired. He's got security. He has provision. He has, he, he has it all where many of us want it. And Jesus renders God's verdict. He says, you fool. This night your, your life is required of you. I mean, we have to bring a corrective to our lives that our thankfulness is often stilted by the giftedness that God has given to us. Do you realize that? Because we take ownership of it. We begin to think it's our doing. Oh, God pulls those up. God helps those who help themselves. So I'm helping myself. I'm doing this work. Just like David. You know what? As for my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Remind yourself, you're dust. 
your dust? I was thinking about, in fact, I heard this um, dates me a bit, but Kansas, great group in the 70s. Many of you know it. And many of you who weren't there in the 70s still know the song because it's still popular. It's Dust in the Wind. It was the huge hit in 77. This is pop culture reminding us what the church should know. Let me just, I'm, I'm tempted to just bust this out right now. <laughs> I will not. But, but here are the lyrics. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes. A curiosity. Dust in the wind. All they are dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Now don't hang on, nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. I mean, that, that's truth screaming at us. I remember in the car screaming that song out, not having a clue what it meant. I do now. I hope you do. It's just dust. You have to remind yourselves you are dust. Otherwise, you won't be thankful. The last move that the psalmist makes is to return to giving thanks again. After he's remembered these mercies, he returns to give thanks to God. Look with me in 11 and 12. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. I think what David has come to in this, in this psalm is he gives thanks. He draws the people into it with him in 4 and 5. He remembers how in his arrogance God was merciful to him and humbled him by turning his face to the side, which returns him to God to give thanks. He is thankful that God has taken that mourning, that mourning of his looking at his sin, his arrogance, his, his ignorance of God, and he's now led him into dancing because God has forgiven him and restored him that he had this garment of sackcloth, a garment of mourning, a, gar a garment of sadness, but now he's been clothed with a garment of praise because he knows that God will deliver him. And David is looking, as it were, into the future. He, he knows the sacrificial lamb system. He knows God has to provide a savior. He knows he cannot be his own savior by promising to do better with the balance of his life. He knows one has to come to deliver, a perfect lamb, ultimately. David even had known that his kingdom would be established through a son, a son that would come, that would be a king, that would be his king and his Lord, as he testifies in Psalm 2. He knows this. And so he rejoices. And that's why he says, and never will I be silent. Never will I be silent. He is pledging to God to give thanks, regardless of what comes. He'll never be silent. He will give thanks to God forever. Why? Because he knows that God will deliver him. Folks, we need to know our own history. We need to know how God has delivered us. We need to know, do you know that? I mean, when you look back in the course of your life, can you think of those times that you were in travail and you sought God and he delivered you? You may have forgotten about them even now. Maybe it was so many years back. But you need to know your own history, particularly the history of how he has drawn you to himself 
in salvation. You didn't wake up one day and discover, I need to become a Christian. I need to be born again. I need to have my sins removed. You didn't wake up and think that. That was God by the Spirit opening your eyes up. Have you thanked him for that? Now, I, I love this, and you know this because I've told you a hundred times, John Newton, his famous words, my favorite words, at the end of his life. They had to get him out of the pulpit finally from preaching because he couldn't see anymore, couldn't hear either. He was preaching until he was in his 80s. But he says this, as my memory fades, two things I remember. I'm a great sinner, and he's a great Savior. It, it, that never left his mind. He never forgot his history that he was a sinner and God's a great savior in Christ. And, and, and so what David's saying is, I'm never going to tire. I'm never going to be silent. I'm never going to stop thanking you. You have delivered me. And for the New Testament saint, when you look at this psalm, it makes total sense. I mean, should we not thank God for Christ? Uh, we were hopeless. We were with we were without hope and full of despair over our own way. And yet he has saved us. So we want to give thanks to him. That's what we do on Sunday morning. That's why you come here. You could have slept in this morning. But now you've been reminded that we are here to give thanks to God. Thanks for Christ that he has delivered us. He has made us new. He's given us a hope. He's given us a future. He's given us a heritage. This psalm is to try to cultivate in us a language of gratitude. How can we be grateful people? Well, by starting to just give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done for us. By doing it in the company of the other saints. By remembering his past mercies, how he has delivered us from sin. And let that just lead us to a recommitment again, a pledge of giving thanks to him. You know, the one thing the church is going to be marked by is a happy church. We can be happy. We have so many... The world has reasons for happiness, and they're all temporary. They're all temporal. They're all dust in the wind. Uh, but our happiness is rooted in something that is not in dust. It's in God. Let's take a minute now and just thank him for that. Father, I do thank you and praise you for your word today. God, help us to be thankful. It is so easy to move to grumbling and complaining what we don't have or what we have that we don't want. And it just blinds us. We spend day after day after day failing to give thanks to you for all that you are, all that you have done. Your name is holy, your actions are perfect, and you have moved with faithfulness to save us, to, to change our mourning into dancing and our, our sackcloth into a garment of praise. Father, may we be marked by gratitude. May it not be said to us that they did not honor him or give thanks. May we both honor you and give thanks to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me just take a minute. Before the elders and servers come up to celebrate communion, let me just carry this theme one more minute. And I want to prepare us for the table because um, really Christ at the Last Supper gave us a reminder, a regularly done reminder of God's character. Uh, you heard the psalmist say that God's anger is for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Now, nowhere else in all of the universe will you see that truth other than this table. His anger is for a moment. His favor for a lifetime. His anger for a moment was displayed perfectly 
in God bringing wrath down upon the Son as he bore our sins. So what the table reminds us when you see the bread broken is the body of Christ, a body that was prepared for him by God, a body that was without sin and yet fully laden with our sin. And that was broken under the weight of God's judgment. That his anger was for a moment, it was fully manifested in Christ. But his favor now is for a lifetime because when Christ died and rose, a covenant was established. A covenant is just a promise. It's a promise that God will be our father and would accept us and would love us and would take us to himself. So when you come to the table, you see the anger of God, but for a moment. But you and I, the Christian, enjoys his favor now forever. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't come limping up to the table. It doesn't mean that we haven't sinned or that we have got everything well in hand or that we're not struggling. It doesn't mean that. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So when we come to the table, we're coming with this visual reminder that, yes, his anger is but for a moment, but his favor to you and me, though we're sinners, though we're broken, though we're easily distracted, though we often ignore God, though we often say with David, as for me and my prosperity, I shall never be moved, those arrogant claims we make, though we do that, his mercy is for us. And month after month, you're reminded, and I'm reminded, his anger is for a moment, but those who have slid under the mercy seat of Christ, his favor, his grace, his love for you is forever, forever. And you're being reminded when you come to the table. So let's take a moment now and just silently speak to God about this. It may be for you, you confess your arrogance. It may be asking God, give me a desire for Christ. I've heard this about him and I don't even love him. Just allow this to be a time of, of cleansing your own heart before God and then the elders and servers will come forward and break the bread for us.